the reading this morning uh, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, to continue our sermon series on Thessalonians, and that's on page 1188 of the Church Bibles. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Morning everyone, my name is Prash, I'm the Senior Minister. It's good to be at church with you this morning and a a very warm welcome if you're new or visiting us here at St Stephen's. Um, We are in the middle of a series looking at the New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the Thessalonians, the first of those letters. And um, we're also today, uh, it's a slightly unusual day, so if you're a visitor or you're new, just, you know, take it in but it's not applicable to you. Today is our gift day. Um, a day we've set aside in, the, in our calendar uh, to focus on how our generosity can further ministry here. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, this morning, I want to continue working through this letter and thinking through the ideas that we've come, we come to as we turn, turn to the second half of this. I looked at the newspaper, uh, newspaper website uh, during the week and something struck me about all of the headlines that you could find. Now, don't worry if you can't read the, all of the... Um, the subtitles to these, but there's something that's pretty common across all of them. I'm not sure if you can tell what they are immediately. It's bad news. Okay, this is what you call clickbait. This is headlines that are, are written to entice you to click on them and to read them, and at the heart of all of them is some kind of bad news. Goodbye. Cult juice brand collapses. Sad reason 10,000 Aussies could be up for $500,000. Fury over monster truck parking havoc. It's very interesting, isn't it? I I didn't, I'm not picking, I'm honestly not picking six random hidden away articles. These were some of the headline articles on this website. Now, what's very interesting is that someone who wrote these headlines wrote them this way because they believe this is what people will want to read more about. People want to read about bad news. That's what you're drawn to. You're drawn to bad news. You live in a world who is most interested, most captivated by bad news. You live in a world, you breathe in a culture, you drink in a language 
which is fundamentally hopeless. That's the world you live in. It's what, it's what excites your mind. You live in a place which is attracted to bad news. And it's not just... It's not just clickbait, it's not just websites, it's not just news organisations who live like this. This is the fundamental inclination of a large proportion of people. One survey done in the US last year said that teenagers, 55% of them, have persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. Not that they've experienced those things in the past year, but these are persistent experiences for them. They have an ongoing experience of sadness and hopelessness. And and on one level, you might stand apart from that statistic and look at it with a great deal of sorrow. But even the statistic draws you in a little bit. Because you and I live in a society, we drink in a culture, we are exposed to a spirit, an age of Hopelessness. Hopelessness. Now, what's very interesting is what Paul says in the first verse of this section of 1 Thessalonians. He says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. You see what Paul's saying here? He's making a very insightful statement about the state of humankind. He's saying they have no hope. What's very interesting here is that Paul is revealing to us, I think, the current relevance of the Bible still to our lives. Because the Bible understands the culture. Now, and what Paul's writing here is an accurate description of Greek and Eastern Asian culture at the time that he's writing it. It is without hope. It is a culture without hope, a place without hope. And, and it, see, the New Testament letters were these letters that were passed on because the early church resonated with the deep truth. They saw them as authoritative, as descriptive of the reality of the world and life. And so Paul is describing the world in Thessalonica, in Greece, in East Asia. But he's also describing our world too. He's describing the world you live in. And he's worth listening to for that reason, apart from the fact of what he comes to tell us. He is describing the world that we live in. A humankind, a society, a culture, a spirit of the age which is fundamentally hopeless. And you may be one of those people who deep down is attracted to despair. Who's attracted to despair. Why are we hopeless? We're hopeless for a few reasons. Paul will say, in, as he understands the surrounding world, in the first chapter of Thessalonians, he talks about how they worship worthless idols. In other words, they're finding their safety, their security, their assurance, their comfort in these things. They might be gold and silver or made of wood. That's still the case in many parts of our world. People try to find comfort in some kind of graven image or some kind of carved image. It might be the case in your own family history. It gives you comfort that there is some kind of statue or something passed down from previous generations that keeps you safe. But Paul says those things will, will actually result in a hopelessness. But in Western culture, 
for most people, those kind of idols, those things that we're looking for, for comfort and assurance, are much more um, regular and ordinary. They are perhaps things like the deep desire just to be loved by someone. If I was loved by someone, then my life would have meaning and purpose and value. If I was professionally successful, if people saw in me someone who's an expert in their area, then I would be worth something. Then my life would be valuable. If God would only give me children, then everything I'm doing could be passed on to someone. Then my life would really be worth it. But what we learn as we think and reflect on all of those is, first of all, they are incapable of actually bearing the burden of those kind of hopes and dreams. They're legitimate hopes and dreams to be worthwhile, to be valuable. They're legitimate hopes and dreams. But those things are incapable of actually bearing them. See, if you do that with your job, you will eventually find someone who's better at your job than you. You will eventually have to come to a point where everyone around you tells you you need to retire. You're too old. You don't know enough. If you do that with the relationships, all, all it will take is one difficult, selfish person in your life to destroy your foundation. If you do it with your children, you may find that your children are never anything like you because, of course, you're a good thing to be. Or you may never be able to have them. But even if, even if you reach the pinnacle of your professional career, even if you accrue the kind of wealth which means you never lack anything, even if you have children, there is something at the end of the road which means that all of those things will end. And that is, of course, death. That is death. Death is painful. And death means that all of these things, they serve no purpose in the grand question of your meaning and purpose and worth and value. You've heard someone say, when you're on your deathbed, you won't say, oh, I wish I worked more. Because, of course, it doesn't get you beyond your deathbed. But it's equally true. You won't think, I wish I had more children. It won't get you beyond your deathbed. You won't think, I wish I accrued more money. It will not purchase you anything beyond your deathbed. Because, and this is the insight of what Paul is doing. He see, he's talking about the world, mankind, having no hope in the context of death. Because death, you see, is this great wall that sits between us and our meaning and our purpose, our worth and our value eternally. And it brings an end to all of the things that we might be chasing, all of the things that we're looking for to find that kind of stability. This is why, it's true actually, this is why it's not just a case of 2023 is the worst of humanity and back in the 40s, oh, well, we had it nailed. Because actually the problem of hopelessness, it comes fundamentally down to our mortality, the reality that we'll all die. And as good as the 
20s and the 30s were. Everyone died. As good as the 1800s were. Everyone died. As good as the, the first century AD was. Everyone died. This, this is the commonality between all seasons, all cultures, all ages. We all die. But Paul, and the question I guess is, what does the gospel and what does the Bible have to say about this? Apart from diagnosing the common, the common problem for all of us, what does the Bible have to say? And Paul does a beautiful job in verses 15 to 17 of our, of our little reading this morning of, I guess, taking the bricks out of this wall of death and giving us a glimpse onto the other side. And Paul's point is that the Christian message in the Bible is a glimpse into what is on offer for you if you want it on the other side. And so he uses four images. If you're a note taker in your booklet, you'll see four boxes, and that's, that's for you, the more visual types, because actually Paul is painting a picture. All of these images are pictures. Will there be a trumpet blast? Who really knows? But the image is here. The images here are to remind us of something. The first we see, verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Paul says... On that last day, Jesus, he won't send an angel. He himself will come down from heaven to earth. And the reason Paul says it, and he gives this kind of this movement here, is to say that this world is not done with. God is not done with this world the way he has made it. When Jesus comes again, on the other side of death, what exists is a world which God still loves and has redeemed and is renewing. And then he says in, at the end of verse 16, he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so there's this movement up. And that's because Paul is trying to say, because the Thessalonians are worried, what happens if my father or my grandfather or my brother who's died, you know, what happens, my wife, my daughter, what happens to them if they've died before Jesus comes back. And Paul says, do not be afraid. The Lord has not forgotten them. He has not forgotten them. And so they will rise six feet under, whether they're mere mere atoms by the time the Lord returns, or they're still in their mortal bodies rotting away. They will rise again. You see, we live, we this is so unusual for us because we live in a time where we throw away stuff as soon as it becomes um useless or less valuable. You have a phone, you use it for five years. If, if you're really good, you put it in the recycling bin at Coles, or if you're like us, it kind of sits on a, on a shelf for like 10 years and then you throw it in the bin. We might be inclined to think that is how God treats us. Well, we're useful, he has a place for us, but then when we're dead, he's done with us. That's not how it works. The Lord remembers you, says Paul. He will remember you, and you will meet him again. You are never beyond the point of usefulness. In fact, that's not even how he thinks of you. He just longs to be with you. And so Paul then goes on, he says in verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. This is one of the great verses of funerals. This is the great comfort for those who have lost someone. That if their faith is in Christ, they will see them again. We will meet together with them. Paul paints this picture of reunion, of people coming together. 
we will be together with them, drawn together with them, reunited with them. And then ultimately, he says, and so we will be with the Lord forever. We reunited to them, which of course is one of our great longings, but ultimately we'll be with the Lord forever. Someone said to me today after the early service, we're not used to having anything last forever. I'm not sure if I really want that. I said to them, but being with the Lord is being with the fountain of all your delights. And every moment, you have a moment of great satisfaction. You wish it could go on forever. You're around the table with your family. And you think, this is, this is the moment that I've been longing for. Will it not just ex- extend into forever? You have a moment of, of purposefulness and usefulness in your task. You have a sense that right now you have all the skills and the abilities to execute the thing that you've been given in front of you. If only I could always... That's it. That sense of worthfulness, worthiness, purposefulness. That comes from the Lord, you see. And so what he's promising you is this. You don't get sick of being worthwhile. And he says, you'll be with the Lord forever. It's not like he'll make an appointment for you after lunch on Monday and he might be running late. No, you'll be with him forever. Forever. And you see, Paul... He deals with all the false hopes of the world by presenting the true hopes that the Scriptures bring. And the reason is because as soon as we start to take down that wall and see what's on the other side, all the other things start to become less apparent to us, less important to us. We realise that being loved by the Lord forever is actually more than enough. Being with those people that we loved is actually something worth looking forward to and longing to. We don't need to cling, like, we don't need to cling feverishly to this relationship, actually, because if if they're in the Lord, it will actually last forever. We don't have to be anxious about it. See, Paul does this beautiful job of saying, here is the hope of the Christian message. It is so much better than whatever you're chasing. And it's real hope. It's not hopelessness. It's not those things you've invested in which start to crumble under the weight of all your expectations. It soars above you. It fills you. It strengthens you. It brings you to fullness. So the question that's with us is how do we make that thing that's on the other side of the wall still for us, so to speak, present in our life? How do we draw that hope into our life now as we live in a place where we're always drinking this spirit and this age of hopelessness? How do we not be hopeless? How does that thing mean enough to us? Well, what's interesting is that Paul, he couches his answer to this in the terms of ignorance or being uninformed. Verse 30 says, don't be ignorant, don't be uninformed. The way you make the hope of the gospel presently relevant in your life is that you, you are very, very careful to not be ignorant of the gospel. And so verse 15 to 17, that's the hope. That's all those images that we talked about. But verse 14, if you have it in front of you, verse 14 is actually the doorway to it. It's the key. You want to be a person marked by the hope that Paul is talking about and offering, you need to know the gospel. 
And so in verse 14, look what he says. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's the gospel. And if you, if you want to know the hope of the gospel, you need to know the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Here it is. It's, it's summarized here. Jesus died and rose again. Now, do you really know the gospel? Do you really know it? You know, Jesus died. It's really important to pick up what Paul's saying here. Every word in what Paul writes is always important. Always. And there's a distinction he's making here. Because look what happens to Jesus. He dies. What happens to us? We sleep. He's very deliberate about that, actually. Death and sleep. And the reason is because Jesus is the only person in this verse who really experiences death. Jesus is the one who experiences death to its fullness and to its, and to its most depravedness, in a sense. Here's what one author says. He says, on the cross, he, that is Jesus, entered death more fully than anyone else has or could. Uh, far from dipping his toe into death, Jesus plunged into hell on Good Friday. He experienced the judgment of God more than anyone else ever could. Not even Satan himself will know the depths of hell the way Jesus did on that now that is an extraordinary thing to say but that's the truth you might think oh but Jesus was dead for three days and my uncle's been dead for three years how, how do they even compare and he came back to life like that, that see the horror of Jesus' death is not just the, 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 the physical suffering of that moment it, it is what Jesus is bearing in that moment. So the Bible tells us that he's bearing the sin and the shame and the guilt of the world at that moment. Now, I don't know about you, but shame is the great thing we're all running from, I think. It's the thing that we're all, right, we're all afraid of being shamed. We spend most of our life trying to cover it up. We spend most of our life making sure people don't see it, doing stuff to ensure that people... Think that we're good. Now imagine having to bear all of that, having all of that open, having all of that guilt and shame weighing down on you. Now imagine having all of the guilt and shame of the people in this building weighing on you. Now imagine having all of the guilt and shame of the whole of human history weighing on you. That's what it means for Jesus to go to hell and to die. He is carrying all of that. All of it. And so he goes into the heart of death, but he rises again and blows a hole through the end of death. In fact, that's why what Paul can say about the future, that's why he can talk about what's on the other side, because he himself hasn't taken down the wall. Jesus Christ has. And it's because of Jesus he can look at the other side and say, this is what's in store. But it's not enough to just know that Jesus died and rose again. I think probably 99% of people in this building probably could have said that if I was to ask them what the gospel is. It's not enough to know the words. It's not enough to have the knowledge. Because look at what, this is what ignorance is. 
Ignorance is just to know it. To know it and to understand it, to be informed, using Paul's words, is to believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now he, again, he uses very important words here. He says, God will, so that we who believe that God will bring with Jesus, say that? He will bring them with Jesus, those that have fallen asleep in him. He repeats it twice. You, you only believe the gospel if you understand that you only get it if you're with Christ. You only understand the gospel if you realize that all of its hopes come only with Christ. Only if you're clothed with Christ. It is no point just being able to articulate it. It is no point being able to answer the question in your gap group. That is not a sufficient understanding of the gospel. The gospel is when you understand it is only available to you when you are clothed with Christ, to use another piece of Paul's language. When you are enfolded in him, covered by him, surrounded by him, embraced by him, totally thrown over to him. If you were to get thrown into the Antarctic today, in your Sunday best, you wouldn't survive, would you? It wouldn't matter. It's minus 50-odd degrees. It wouldn't matter how much you stamped your feet and blew warm air into your hands and pulled your jacket around you. You would die. You must be clothed with the right things. And so it is in your life. You cannot experience the hope of the gospel unless you are clothed with Christ, unless you draw him around you, unless you find your assurance, your safety, your comfort, your warmth, your embrace, your affection from Jesus. And so Paul says that is what it is like to know the gospel, to know it, not, to, not just to be able to articulate it, but to be informed by it so that your whole life is actually informed by it to draw Christ around you. I want to warn you at this point in time, my friends. It is not enough to be able to articulate the gospel. You must own it. You must wear it. You must believe it. You must entrust yourself to it. How do you get the hope of the gospel in your life? It is by knowing and being informed and by owning and wearing the Lord Jesus, by being clothed by him. By being clothed by him. By, being entrusted, by entrusting yourself to him. But here's something very interesting that Paul says as we finish. He says, the hope of the gospel comes into this world. Yes, of course, because of Jesus. right, And through faith in Christ. But do you notice what he says at the end? Verse 18, just one verse. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. How does the gospel become operative in the life of a Christian? In the life of an individual? The answer is in this verse. See, the clothing of Christ and the clothing of gospel hope comes through God's people, the church. See, one another is one of those phrases in the New Testament. happens about, I forget the number, it's either 50 or 100 times. It's a very prevalent little phrase. And it's used particularly by Paul to describe the experience of Christian community, of the church, of the fellowship of believers, the communion of saints, 
And Paul's point here is that gospel hope, the clothing of Christ, so to speak, is delivered to the world by God's people, the local church. That's how it comes into the world. That's how it crosses over the boundary, so to speak, through the people of God, through the local church. We titled our series, A Church for the Future. And in this moment, what we mean by that is we are a church whose job is to bring the future hope of the gospel into the present reality of people's lives. That's the job. You have no greater calling in your life as God's people than this, to bring the hope of the gospel, this extraordinary thing which you didn't earn, which you didn't create, which you didn't establish, which will change people's lives, you have this job, this purpose, this focus in your life to bring this into the lives of other people through your words, through your service, through your care as you encourage one another with the gospel truths. Today's gift day. We'll talk about that later. But you know, when we talk about investing in the local church, we are talking about this supreme task The local church is the hope of the world, not because it's a great community of people who are nice to each other. The local church is the hope of the world, not because it has traditions which are passing away and were so great for previous generations. The local church is the hope of the world, not because it cares for people who are doing it tough. The local church is the hope of the world because it brings the hope of the gospel. Everything else is secondary. Everything else. And praise God for that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary truth of Jesus' death, his devastating, deeply terrifying death and his extraordinary, powerful resurrection. We thank you for this news because he did this, not just for himself, but marvelously for us. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit, that he would open our hearts and minds to truly know the gospel and to pull Christ close to us to be clothed with him, to be sheltered within him, to find assurance and comfort in Jesus, Lord. Heavenly Father, help us to repent of every moment that we find our our comfort and assurance in the things that just are incapable of doing it and strip you of glory and, Lord, shift our eyes to Jesus. And, Lord, we pray that you might refresh and renew in our hearts the vision you have for your local church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.